0: Railroaded, the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht.
1: The Silk Road and trial of Ross Albrook involved many important and complex issues that impact the life of Mr. Ulbricht and us all. That's a quote from actor Keanu Reeves. Hello and welcome to the Railroaded podcast. This is part seven I have an eight-part series and is about the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. My name is Gary Leland, and I'm also known as the Crypto Podcaster. You may know me from my other podcasts, such as the Crypto Cousins Podcast and the 4-Minute Crypto Show. Railroaded is a podcast series revealing behind-the-scenes information you've never heard before. This is a peek into the inner workings and conflicts of the Silk Road story, and you'll meet the people involved. I did not produce the railroaded content that you're about to hear. I'm just distributing it as a podcast to help it reach a larger audience. I hope that the more people that know about Ross's situation, the better his chances are of being freed. The information in this podcast is based on the public record and should not be attributed to myself, Ross Ulbrich, Lynn Ulbrich, or anyone connected with FreeRoss.org. I am not responsible for and do not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in this series. Railroaded was created by the Free Ross team and is narrated by Adrian Bassan. And on today's episode, you'll hear Chapter 19, Double Life for a Website, Chapter 20, Exposing the Corruption. Now it's time for the show.
0: Railroaded, the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. Narrated by Adrian Bassan. The following is based on public information sources, including court filings, transcripts, trial exhibits, affidavits, warrant applications, subpoenas, judicial rulings, investigation reports, press releases, sworn testimony, and direct evidence. Some gaps remain due to government protective orders, redactions, sealed records, missing records the court cannot account for, dropped investigations, tampered evidence, communications and other data that remain encrypted, and the fact many of the parties involved have not testified. Even so, every effort has been made to accurately present the available evidence surrounding the creation, investigation, and shutdown of Silk Road, and the prosecution of Ross Ulbricht. Chapter 19. Double Life for a Website Pope Francis said, A life sentence is just a death penalty in disguise. Prior to sentencing, 100 people who know Ross personally wrote to Judge Forrest, pleading with her to give Ross the shortest sentence possible. According to her, they were powerful, moving, and revealing testaments to Ross's character. She told Ross that the letters were written by a vast, broad array of people which are a statement that is extraordinary for you because they are from every phase of your life. They reveal a man who was loved, has built enduring and significant relationships over a lifetime, and maintained them. The letters reveal you as intelligent, that you displayed great kindness to many people, that people believed in you when you were younger and believe in you still. The letters that your supporters wrote express experiencing great pain at your incarceration and concern for your future. Yet, the judge said she was confused by the letters that showed Ross to be a different man than Turner made him out to be. Frankly, I can't make a judgment about which of you to know, which of you to rely on, and which of you to believe, she said at sentencing. There is no reason to make a choice between these two people that I see on display, the Ross who is the leader of the criminal enterprise, and the Ross who is known and loved. Judge Forrest was articulating the very defense Draytel had attempted to put forth, that there wasn't more than one Ross, a flesh-and-blood man who sat before her for three weeks. There was more than one DPR, a digital persona that was designed to be passed on and used by multiple people. Instead, the judge concluded that Ross is just very, very complex. Ross tried to explain his intentions in creating Silk Road and where things went wrong. Silk Road was supposed to be about giving people the freedom to make their own choices, to pursue their own happiness however they individually saw fit. I do not and never have advocated the abuse of drugs. I learned from Silk Road that when you give people freedom... You don't know what they'll do with it. While I still don't think people should be denied the right to make this decision for themselves, I never sought to create a site that would provide another avenue for people to feed their addictions. Ultimately, the judge agreed with Turner's depiction of Ross as a ruthless kingpin and a threat to her way of life. In the world that you created over time, Democracy that we had set up with our founding fathers that provide for the passage of laws and the enforcement of those laws through our democratic process did not exist, she said. It wasn't about democracy. You sought to put yourself above the law, she continued. You asserted that you were better than the laws of this country. She referenced anonymous online posts by DPR, attributing them to Ross personally, saying, There are posts which discuss the laws as the oppressor and that each transaction is a victory over the oppressor. This is deeply troubling and terribly misguided and also very dangerous. I make this judgment mindful of the needs for the severest possible penalty to be imposed, Judge Forrest stated before issuing her sentence. There must be no doubt that lawlessness will not be tolerated. Fortunately for Ross... The death penalty was not within the judge's power to give in this case. Ross pleaded for mercy. I will not lose my love for humanity during my years of imprisonment, and upon my release, I will do what I can to make up for not being there for the people I love. If I do make it out of prison decades from now, I won't be the same man, and the world won't be the same place. I'll be an old man, at least fifty, with the additional wear and tear prison life brings. I will know firsthand the heavy price of breaking the law, and will know better than anyone that it is not worth it. I've had my youth, and I know you must take my middle years. But please leave me my old age. Please leave a small light at the end of the tunnel, and a chance to redeem myself in the free world before I meet my maker. Then, after she rejected being called an oppressor, Judge Forrest gave Ross two life sentences plus 40 years in prison without the possibility of parole for all nonviolent charges. As Drug Policy Alliance wrote to the Supreme Court, This is far harsher than typical sentences for drug trafficking, and given Ross's youth and absence of criminal history, the life sentence is particularly shocking. In violation of the First Amendment, Judge Forrest based this sentence, in part, on what she perceived were Ross's political and philosophical views. The reasons that you started Silk Road were philosophical, she said, and I don't know that it is a philosophy left behind. Perhaps if Ross was somehow able to convince her that he had abandoned his dangerous ideas, she may have spared him from a life sentence. The judge said she wanted anyone who might believe in the same philosophy. To understand very clearly and without equivocation that if you break the law in this way, there will be very, very severe consequences. Those considering stepping into Ross's shoes, carrying some flag, some misguided flag, or doing something similar, should be put in prison until the day of their death. Yet neither the First Amendment nor the sentencing statutes and guidelines permit a person's creed, their personal beliefs, to be considered at sentencing. According to the National Lawyers Guild, given the judge's rhetoric, there is strong reason for concern that Ross was punished for the political views he held and to send a message to would-be copycats. Her attempt at deterrence failed, however. Following Ross's sentencing, anonymous online markets similar to Silk Road proliferated. Some of these were also shut down by the government, including Silk Road 2.0, an even bigger replica of Silk Road. However, in contrast to Ross's sentence, its operator spent just 13 days in jail and was never prosecuted. To justify giving Ross the harshest punishment our legal system allows short of death, Judge Forrest held Ross accountable for acts that a jury did not find him responsible for in violation of the Sixth Amendment. Turner was allowed to game the system by leaving out the murders for hire and other allegations, yet then use those claimed crimes at sentencing, as though they had been facts found by a jury. One of those other allegations was that six people overdosed from drugs bought on Silk Road. Grieving family members were allowed to testify, despite there being insufficient information, to attribute any of the deaths to drugs purchased from Silk Road vendors. According to appellate judge Gerard Lynch, this created an enormous emotional overload and put an extraordinary thumb on the scale that shouldn't be there. Judge Forrest accepted the government's claims, despite serious factual disputes over the reliability of that evidence. Even Curtis Green, one of the alleged victims, doesn't believe the government. Ross Albrecht got a raw deal, he tweeted. There is so much more to the Silk Road story than people know, and I can't yet talk about. I don't believe Ross is dangerous or that it is in his character to order a hit on anyone. He should never have gotten that horrible sentence. Chapter 20 Exposing the Corruption Henry Blodgett, CEO of Business Insider, said, Ulbricht's life sentence won't deter others from giving Americans access to the drugs they want. It won't protect society. It won't serve justice in some moral or cosmic sense. It will just waste another life behind bars and cost non-incarcerated taxpayers about $2 million over Ulbricht's 50-year remaining life expectancy. As Dreytel predicted, Hahn waited seven weeks after Ross's trial before indicting Force and Bridges for corruption. This was the first time that anyone outside of her inner circle learned about Bridges. Even more of Force's misconduct was divulged, shedding light on his capacity for fraud, deception, forgery, abuse of his government authority, and access, including predatory and retaliatory conduct, and false accusations against innocent persons and inventing complex, layered cover stories to conceal his misdeeds. It was revealed that Force and Bridges worked in concert with one another. Bridges' specialty was in computer forensics and anonymity software derived from Tor. He was the task force's subject matter expert in Bitcoin. Force was therefore assisted in his illegal, unauthorized infiltration and manipulation of the Silk Road website by a computer forensics agent with expertise in anonymity and Bitcoin. The agents engaged in a series of complex transactions between various Bitcoin accounts and received several large international and domestic wire transfers through late 2013 and early 2014. All deposits after October 1, 2013, were made when Ross was in prison, begging the question of the source of those funds. It became clear that Force and Bridges were masters of deception. Not only did they set up Green to take the fall for their theft from Silk Road, but Hahn revealed that they had papered up the seizure of the digital currency portion of yet another victim's accounts, in such a way that Force would be covered in In the event anyone ever asked any questions about his conduct, it was an attempt to give himself plausible deniability. The full nature of Force and Bridges misconduct has yet to be disclosed, as the government quickly reached plea agreements with both, resolving their cases without any additional disclosure to the public. They were never required to decrypt the encrypted conversations they had with DPR, nor were they required to turn over their laptops, email accounts, and other digital information that might reveal the depth of their involvement. As Hahn admitted, there are a lot of unanswered questions. Bridges attempted unsuccessfully to minimize the damage. One of his Secret Service colleagues testified before the grand jury on his case. She had done FinCEN searches for him to see if any reports had been issued with his name. He met with her before and after her testimony to make sure their stories matched up. However, Hahn discovered this and used it against him. Bridges even got married in an attempt to hide the full extent of his corruption. Ariana Esposito was subpoenaed to the grand jury to testify against him, but she asked for a weak reprieve, because of a scheduling issue. In the intervening weekend, she married Bridges and then invoked spousal immunity. Hahn would never discover what Esposito was hiding. Knowing his arrest was imminent, Bridges prepared to escape. He requested to be allowed to turn himself in to the prison instead of being arrested, but Hahn opposed and was given the green light to take Bridges into custody. They found him in his home with passports, documents pertaining to offshore companies based in Belize, Mauritius, and Nevis, and a bulletproof vest. There were also documents related to Esposito's attempts to obtain citizenship in another country, and a MacBook with the serial number scratched off. Since people almost never flee without some access to money overseas, Draytel commented, Bridges' plans and the foreign corporations begs the question whether we know the full range of his and forces' illegal activity in connection with the Silk Road site. The government has clearly been more interested in suppressing such disclosure than getting to the bottom of it. Ultimately, both force and Bridges pled guilty and asked for mercy from their judges. Force was sentenced to six and a half years, Bridges to six years. However, Bridges got two years stacked on top of his sentence when, two years into his sentence, he tried to move and launder 1,606 stolen bitcoins that Hahn had failed to find. He took the digital keys he needed to access them from the Secret Service before his arrest. The bitcoins had originally been stolen by force, but Bridges then laundered them through several bitcoin companies overseas, and ultimately sent them to his own wallet. In addition to the corruption perpetrated by force and Bridges, a more sinister and violent element was at play in the Silk Road case, but had escaped Hahn's notice. When Ross was arrested, and Silk Road taken offline, Roger Clark whom the government believed was a senior advisor to DPR, was just returning to his home in Thailand. Clark revealed that, six months later, a rogue, highly-placed member of the FBI anonymously contacted him online. The agent insisted on being called Chrysippus, after a Greek Stoic philosopher. He told Clark the name was very important to him, Clark recounted, and he'd get pissed when I wouldn't use it. He said he had stolen a Bitcoin wallet from the evidence in the Silk Road case that had well over 300,000 Bitcoins in it. However, the wallet was encrypted, so he needed the password to get the funds. He speculated that either Clark or Ross had the password, or each had half of it. According to Clark, Chrysippus had a long-term, well-thought-out plan to get access to the wallet. He told Clark that the odds were Ross was going to be sentenced to between 40 years and life. Chrysippus would wait for Ross to be transferred out of the New York detention center to a penitentiary where he was going to work on getting people inside the facility to arrange it so he could communicate with Ross. He would then get Clark to somehow convince Ross to give up the passphrase he believed Ross had. Clark was skeptical. So, to prove that he was as deep inside the investigation as he claimed, Chrysippus began feeding him tidbits of information that only an insider would know. These culminated in late October 2014, when he revealed that force and bridges were being investigated for corruption, and gave Clark lots of details about the current state of the grand jury investigation into them. However, as covered previously, "'Turner kept Force's involvement under seal "'and out of Ross's trial "'and hid Bridges' existence entirely. "'Chrysippus became frustrated "'that his proof was taking so long to be revealed, "'and Clark teased him unmercifully about it, "'which made him livid. "'Chrysippus wrote long rants, "'assuring Clark that Force and Bridges "'were going to be arrested any day. "'Then one day, Chrysippus did something new,' He signed off on one of his frustrated rants with the initials C.W.T. with two dashes before it. Dash dash C.W.T. Clark waited until they were chatting in real time and confronted him with the slip-up. Chrysippus became flustered and tried to change the subject, but Clark kept bringing it back around. Eventually, Chrysippus claimed C.W.T. stood for carat as in the unit for measuring the weight of diamonds. From then on, despite the pride he held for the name Chrysippus, he now insisted on being called Diamond. When the corruption of force and bridges was finally revealed, Chrysippus, now Diamond, was ecstatic. He kept wanting me to follow this link or that link or read this article, Clark posted, I allowed him to send me a few snippets of articles and court filings and whatnot that confirmed the details of what he had been telling me. Later, I did a bit of digging around on my own and discovered that, for all his hubris, Chrysippus managed to leave out one of Force's major mistakes. As previously mentioned, Force had signed a message to DPR, presumably out of habit, with his first name, Carl, while posing as French maid. Little bells went off in my head, Clark said. I could see Diamond, as Chrysippus, doing the exact same thing when he was all excited and pissed off I wasn't taking him seriously. No doubt in my mind now. Chrysippus was going to figure in who Diamond was, and so will dash dash CWT. Diamond was just a quick response to the situation, and he insisted on using it exclusively now. Even with proof that Chrysippus was a high-level FBI agent, Clark didn't trust him and wasn't going to go along with his plan. I was for the first time really worried that he was going to try and force me to do his bidding, or kill me, he wrote. Clark heard about four men moving about the island, asking about him. So he fled Thailand. When he told Chrysippus that he had evaded his men, he went mental and started going on about his backup plan. Clark said. He would kidnap Ross's sister, or mother, or ideally both. Get a video-capable phone in front of Ross, and he'd give up that passphrase, or he would have them tortured until he did. I had his bona fides by now, and knew him well enough to know he was serious about this. On May 11, 2015, just weeks before Ross was sentenced, Clark emailed Turner, showing him the inside information on force and bridges that Chrysippus had given him, and asked for a meeting. He tracked the email and saw that Turner had read it, but he never got a response. Clark then tried to track down Chrysippus himself to stop him, but toward the end of May he decided Chrysippus would, in fact, go through with his plan. I concentrated on the the I-convince-Ross-to-give-me-the-passphrase version, but he was still going to plan the kidnappings. Once again, Clark emailed Turner, even though Chrysippus had threatened his life if he had any dealings with the U.S. justice system in any form. Again, the email was read. And again, Turner ignored him. Desperate, on September 27, 2015, Clark went public with the entire story, posting a synopsis along with proof of the emails he sent Turner. Someone has to make sure he doesn't succeed in kidnapping Ross's sister and or his mother, Clark wrote. And it would be kind of swell of them to make sure Ross doesn't come to any harm as well. Draytel immediately wrote Turner about the threat to Ross's family. Turner did not confirm or deny Clark's information. With Clark's story public, many on the internet speculated on the rogue FBI agent's identity. They noticed that... Despite being the name of an ancient Greek Stoic, Chrysippus sounds a lot like the modern name Chris. They also pointed out that Chris Tarbell's middle name is William, so his initials are C.W.T. For a written version of this episode, plus citations and footnotes, go to freeross.org slash railroaded.
1: Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to help Ross, please consider signing and sharing Ross's clemency petition at freeross.org petition. Over 190,000 people have signed it so far. We should hit 200,000 people pretty soon. For additional information, visit freeross.org. You can also follow Ross on Twitter at RealRossU, and U is just the letter U. Everyone, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. I'd love it if you could give this podcast a five-star rating or a great review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. That really does help way more than you know. And please, share this podcast with your friends on social media and let's get the word out there. This episode is sponsored by BitBlockBoom. Take a look at the great Bitcoin conference coming to Dallas, Texas at BitBlockBoom.com. I hope I get to meet you in Dallas. Now, until the next episode, this is Gary Leland from the Crypto Podcaster saying thank you for taking... The time to listen.